Welcome to the Paul Gunn Podcast. Paul is an American pastor and chaplain who seeks to teach the Bible in an easy to understand and inspirational way to people of all ages. He believes the truths found in the scriptures have the power to change lives. Paul's church has a diverse mix of nationalities and ethnicities where the scriptures are taught in seven languages. When he's not serving his church, he's serving the military as a chaplain. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoy this edition of the Paul Gunn Podcast. The title of my message this morning is It Takes a Team. And this is my second message in the series on the book of Nehemiah. So find Nehemiah. And while you're going there, I want to say hello to Connor Cazole, who subscribes to our YouTube channel. Connor is 11 years old, lives in Michigan, and is the son of my uh, first cousin. So Connor, welcome. We're glad that you subscribe to our YouTube channel and we hope that the messages are inspirational to you. I want to recap where we are in the story of Nehemiah. Last week I started out with a new book that I haven't really studied very much before, but I'm learning so much. Before Nehemiah came on the scene, there was a man named Ezra. And Ezra had returned to Jerusalem to help build the country. And Nehemiah came after Ezra. The Jewish people had been dispersed uh, well before Nehemiah and Ezra's times, and they were allowed to return to Jerusalem under King Cyrus. So Nehemiah was a man who was born outside of Jerusalem. He was a Jewish man. He had never been to Jerusalem. Uh, he was born in another country a long time after the Jews had been scattered. And he had an important position with his king, who happened to be King Artaxerxes. Now, King Artaxerxes was not a Jewish king, but he had this man named Nehemiah who worked for him. And although the Jews had been allowed to return to their, their home area of Jerusalem almost 100 years before, the walls of the city had still not been rebuilt. And Nehemiah's uh, brothers visited Jerusalem, and they came back and told Nehemiah that the walls had not been rebuilt. Uh, Nehemiah was saddened to hear this news. Walls of a city back then had an important significance. And in Nehemiah's case, there was spiritual significance. We'll learn more about that. And this, this news deeply disturbed Nehemiah, who had never been to his ancestral homeland. And he started to feel a call from God to return to Jerusalem and to lead a campaign to rebuild the walls. He began to pray, and he asked for God's favor as he committed himself to becoming a missionary to his own people, the people of his homeland. Now, in the early part of chapter 2, we see that the king that Nehemiah worked for noticed that Nehemiah was sad. And he asked him what was going on, and Nehemiah explained the situation about Jerusalem. And he requested approval to leave his post as a worker of the king and to obtain the needed materials to rebuild the wall. 
And the king granted Nehemiah's request and gave him a military uh, consort to take him back to the Jerusalem. So here he is, this man who used to work with the king, asked for permission to go back to Jerusalem, and the king not only says yes, but gives him supplies and military protection along his long journey. So today's lesson has four points, and here they are. First, inspiring leaders recognize problems and potential. Second, an effective team does not make excuses. Third, a strong leader protects his team. And fourth, a productive team works together for a common goal. Four important points, and I will remind you of them as we go through this morning's message. So would you say our confession with me? I believe the Bible. It is the word of God. Every word of God is true. If the Bible says something that disagrees with my attitudes, my beliefs, my opinions, or my traditions, I will change with the power of the Holy Spirit. It's been a while since I told you this, but I learned that confession from a pastor who used to come and preach at the youth camp where I worked in Texas when I was a teenager. pastor was named Dennis Ball, and Dennis died this past week. A man of God who built a great church in Fort Worth, Texas, and always took time out of his busy schedule to come and preach to youth at a camp about uh, two hours east of where he pastored. First, I want you to note that inspiring leaders recognize problems and potential. Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Nehemiah succinctly summarizes his trip in just four words. I went to Jerusalem. So he must not have felt that it was worth mentioning uh, several things that we should keep in mind. Uh, Susa, where Nehemiah was stationed in, with his job for the king, uh, was the king's winter's, winter palace, and it was about a thousand miles from Jerusalem. 
And so as such, Nehemiah's journey would have taken about two months, maybe longer, depending on all kinds of factors in travel in that day. And while Nehemiah traveled with a military escort, it's not really clear what happened to the escort after he arrived. Apparently the military escort returned home once they had gotten, he had gotten Nehemiah safely to Jerusalem. And for whatever reason, Nehemiah showed up on the scene and he did not express his intentions to the people. Instead, he rested for a few days and then took this rather clandestine tour of the destruction. So here's a thousand-mile journey that he summed up into four words, I went to Jerusalem, because the journey to him was not important. The hardships of the journey were not important. What was important is that he was there to help Jerusalem rebuild their wall. Now, I think about uh, Nehemiah, and as he arrived on the scene, he had never seen photographs, of course, of Jerusalem. He was taking all this in for the first time, returning to the land of his forefathers with this, this vision, this call, this drive from God to help the people rebuild their walls. The problems were obvious. The ruin was terrible. Nehemiah was not even able to complete his tour around the perimeter of Jerusalem because of all the rubble and debris. Still, Nehemiah did not grow discouraged. You know, it's really uh, interesting how we get used to certain things. Uh, if I put a concrete block next to one of our brick walls outside of the sanctuary... Probably the first few times you pass it, you would notice it. And then after a while, you wouldn't even notice it. But visitors would notice it. So the people in Jerusalem had grown accustomed to the rubble all around them. They'd been there for a hundred years. See, the people who had returned to Jerusalem had already died and gone. And now there was another generation, another generation, maybe even another generation that had grown up among the rubble and they saw it as normal. Listen to this. You know about diamonds. A diamond is a valuable gemstone, but you would not know it was a diamond when it is mined unless you know what you're looking for. In the beginning, it's rough. It's unpolished. It looks just like a rock, maybe a special rock, but miners have to know what to look for to discover it. And then experts have to, have to sort the diamonds. They have to cut and polish them and they certify them and it, eventually they place them in jewelry. It's a lot of work. And if those experts didn't know better, they might think that it was not worth the effort. But diamond experts do not ignore the problems. They do not avoid the work because they know the value of the diamond. And so, Nehemiah knew the value of rebuilding the walls. And as he walked around on his, rode around on his private tour of the area, thinking what the Lord had called him to do and considering the strategy that he had to put together to get behind this effort, no doubt, 
He was just like somebody looking at a rock and saying, that's a diamond. It just has to be worked on. Nehemiah was realistic. And we get a realistic description of what he was looking at. And in the same way, good leaders are realistic. They take a hard look at broken things. They review the areas that need improvement. They, they do not sugarcoat what's wrong, but they also see potential. They bring a fresh perspective. And they, they look for ways to inspire and so Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem, or at least we have no record that he'd ever been. He definitely had never seen it in its heyday when it was beautiful and all the walls were strong and pristine. He, Nehemiah, was born in, in captivity, really. He never knew the city when it was a thriving place of commerce or the religious center of Israel. Yet he had a vision for what it could be. So listen to this, inspiring leaders recognize the problems and the potential. Second, I want you to see that an effective team does not make excuses. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Now, we just have a few sentences there, but Nehemiah no doubt put a lot more effort in it than we have the record to to inspire the people and convince them that they needed to quit living among the ruins. A couple of summers ago, I spoke to one of our refugee congregations upstairs, and the title of my message was, It's Time to Leave the Refugee Camp. And I explained to them uh, how their children were being taught in school, they're being educated, and they were being... They were being taught in their minds conditioned to plan for a future, not live just day to day. And so I explained to them in my observation of their wonderful families that because moms and dads had spent 15 years or more in refugee camps, that the way that they lived was day to day in the refugee camp. It was just survival, a bowl of porridge or some little bit of food that came from the United Nations or other help groups per day. And then the thought is, we've made it through a day. Maybe we will make it through another day. And so what I explained in love to some of the refugee families that were in that service is that we have a group of parents who love their children and have, have given up their homelands in order for their children's to, to children to have a life. But, but many of the adults were stuck in that idea of if we can just make it through today. And, and when they got paid on Friday, a lot of them were just spending their money rather quickly and they weren't saving for the future. And I said, but now your children are growing up a different way and they're, they're, they're learning how to make plans for the future. So we have in your homes, there are two fundamental different ways of thinking. 
you know, let's live for today and hope we make it through today and face tomorrow tomorrow. And then you have children that are planning for their future. And so I encouraged as lovingly as I could for the refugee parents to start thinking in terms of leaving the refugee camp behind and not being satisfied with just living day to day, but planning for a future. And this is what Nehemiah did. He, 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 he spoke among the people and said, hey, there's a bunch of ruins here. You're, you're so used to these walls that have fallen. But look at the potential. Look at what can be. Let's all get together and do this. And somehow or other, other than it's just the leadership of God, they got behind this guy who was an outsider. And they began the good work, as the scripture called it. Nehemiah was obviously concerned about the Jewish nation, but he was concerned about much more than just its protection. He considered the broken walls to be a dishonor to God. The Jews were God's chosen people, and and they did not make that a secret. (laughs) But the poor condition of where they lived, the poor condition of the walls in the city announced to the world that they were vulnerable, And that brought ridicule. Their enemies mocked them. Their enemies questioned uh, God's power in their own lives. The enemies questioned their, their ability to control their destiny. And Nehemiah rallied the people to do something about the problem, and the people responded. You know, sometimes there are movements that are just waiting for a leader. And this is one of them. You know, the the best motivator in the world cannot succeed if his team fails to cooperate. In the case of these people living in Jerusalem, they had lived in this broken down place for so long, it would have been easy for them to say, what's the bother? We're used to this mess. (laughs) What's the bother? We have have created paths and little roads around the rubble. It doesn't really bother us. We are used to it, but they did not. They were inspired by Nehemiah's leadership. They recognized the problem. The problem was that they hadn't been motivated to do it anymore. There hadn't been a team. There hadn't been a coach for the team. There hadn't been a leader to come in and say, let's do this. They saw the potential. And they readily agreed to join the work. Now, this gets exciting. So we see that inspiring leaders recognize the problems and the potential. We we see that an effective team does not make excuses. And we see next that a, a strong leader protects his team. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 19. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, official and Geshem the Arab heard about it they mocked and ridiculed us what is this you are doing they asked are you rebelling against the king and Nehemiah says I answered them by saying the God of heaven will give us success we his servants will start rebuilding but as for you you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it I mean, Nehemiah knew the hearts of these men. He knew that they felt threatened by the Jews. And they did not want the wall to be rebuilt. He also knew the setbacks that such men can cause by running their big mouths. It had happened before. 
busybody rulers from surrounding areas had complained to the king when, when Ezra had arrived years before. And, and outside interference had, had previously stopped the work. Nehemiah knew that someone had to put these men in their places. I spoke with a senior military leader once who told me that when he was promoted to the highest possible rank in his career field, that the man who was instrumental in his promotion said to him, now that you are going into a senior leader position, you must promise me that you will do the right thing even if it gets you fired. Think about that. A good leader recognizes the enemy, and a good leader is not not afraid to call them out. And he not only wants to protect his team, he, he realizes that leadership's not a popularity contest. If there's anything wrong with leaders in our country this, today, it's, it's their efforts to make everyone happy. You know, America was founded on, on majority rule and minority rights, not, not everyone is happy. A leader must make decisions at times that that are not popular. And Nehemiah knew the, knew the history of the Jewish people. He knew the importance of rebuilding the walls and restoring, restoring Jerusalem to, to its former glory and its, and its honor of God. He saw these, these broken walls as just disrespect to God. But my guess is that that Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshep did not know the history of the Jewish people. And we know from the Old Testament, that had they wanted to be included in this family of faith, they could have been included. But they didn't want to be included. They wanted the work to stop. They didn't care about the walls. They, they wanted no change whatsoever. They wanted the walls to stay down. So they tried to sabotage the plan with hurtful words. I can just hear their mockery in my mind. Oh, look at them. Wow, look at them. They think they're God's people. They're going to rebuild these walls. Hey, these walls have been down. You've been back for 100 years and you haven't done anything. Why now all of a sudden, look, all of you are living fine. And some of you don't look healthy enough to rebuild these walls. What a joke this is. Can't you just see the mockery? Can't you just hear the mockery in your mind of these, these naysayers off in the distance, or even coming near, mocking people with their plan. Inspiring leaders recognize the problems and the potential. An effective team does not make excuses. A strong leader protects his team, and a productive team works together for a common goal. Listen to what the scripture says. Nehemiah chapter 3, Elisha, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the tower of the hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section and Zachar, son of Emery, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hesena. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. 
Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. Listen to this. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. <laughs> I'll talk about them in a minute. The work on the wall was organized. It was efficient. Probably all of the training that Nehemiah had as an employee of the king came into place here. He knew how to organize. He knew how to plan. He knew how to call the shots and the people got behind him. Chapter 3 outlines the diversity of the builders here. Everyone was included. Priests, rulers, merchants, goldsmiths, perfumers. And, and even women helped with the rebuilding efforts, which would have been unheard of in this day. Some of the people lived inside of the wall who helped rebuild the wall. And some of the people we know from, from their names and uh, where their locations were, some of the people had houses that were built into the rubble of the walls or near the wall. And some people lived in groups 10 to 12 miles away. They all came together. Large and difficult projects are rarely or maybe almost never completed by one person. Nehemiah might have been the face of the rebuilding effort, but a team of workers was behind him. Most of those were people who probably had little or no construction experience, but that did not stop them, did it? The priest did not say, hey, our job's in the temple. No. They pitched in and they worked. The perfumers did not complain that the job was too smelly. No. The rulers did not complain that the work was beneath them. The only people who refused to work were the nobles of Tekoa. And what a sad legacy for them to leave behind. In the, in the in the midst of a chapter of workers, they go down in history as the lazy ones, the ones who would not pitch in. Why did they not help? Everyone else was. Was it, was it because they were nobles and they thought that the work was beneath them? Was it because they tried to rally the people before but had failed? Was it because some outsider that no one even knew named Nehemiah had showed up and come up with this crazy idea? Listen to me, folks. As Christians... There is kingdom work to be done. And, and yes, some of that work is front and center. You know, the people who stand on the, the stage happen to be the ones who get noticed. But, but the majority of the work takes place behind the scenes. You leading your Bible study group and preparing by yourself at home during the week. Teachers, nursery workers people who empty the trash cans and clean toilets and vacuum the carpet. You know, there's someone here who makes deposits at the bank and someone who orders supplies. And the work of the church goes well beyond the doors of the church. There are needs to be met in our community. There are needs to be met in our world. And much of that work is unglamorous. And some of it requires us to get our hands dirty. You know, a lot of the work that needs to be done is not clean. It's hard. It always involves sacrifice of some, 
of, of time and sometimes money and, and spiritual leaders play a part. But the job is too big for just one person or a handful of people. So here's my question to, to us fellow believers. Are we helping build the kingdom or are any of us refusing to do our part? Are you pitching in or are you making excuses? Kingdom work takes a team. As Christians, our goal, our common goal as a team coming together to live among the rubble of sin in this world is to come together for the common cause of bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what is your role in that? You've been listening to the Paul Gunn Podcast, produced by Marie McKinney-Oates, available on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tina Tran. Have a good day, mate.